culture is events and the items that make up those events, right? And we're hoping to collect those and put them on display for the world. Friday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. We've been on a little bit of a summer vacation over the past couple of weeks, but we are back with one that I'm really excited about today with Tom McLeod, the CEO and founder of Archive. Archive just this week announced a $9.7 million seed round led by Offline Ventures and TCG Crypto with participation from NFX, Freestyle Capital, Coil, Julia Lipton's Awesome People Ventures, Coinbase Ventures, Saltwater, and a bunch of great angels and smaller funds. They brought together a great group of people around the table for an idea that relies on community. Archive is building a decentralized museum curated by its members. I'll just read the description from the site. It says that Archive is a Web3 museum of real-world items curated by a community of passionate hobbyists, collectors, artists, designers, and creators. They're creating a version of the Smithsonian in which the members of the community vote on what archive acquires, where it's displayed, and that might be on a tour, that might be in museums, and where the members of the community own the artifacts themselves. You've likely heard me talk about Masterworks, whether on the podcast or in the newsletter. Art is an asset class that billionaires own and multi-multi-multi-millionaires own, but that typically the average person, unless they're investing through something like Masterworks or Rally, doesn't have the chance to own. This takes the, the process one step further and allows members of the community to figure out what they want to buy. The first thing that the group chose to buy was the patent for the original ENIAC computer, and they have more on the way. One of the things that got me involved with and got me so excited with Archive, other than Tom, who you'll meet, and the amazing community that they're bringing together, is the fact that it seems to be kind of a descendant of Constitution Dow. Constitution Dow came together to try to buy one cultural artifact together as a group ended up losing at auction. Tom saw that and decided to build something more sustainable where a group of people can contribute their money and their time and their expertise to build a coherent collection instead of just one item. I think that it's going to be really cool. I highly encourage everybody to go check it out at archive, A-R-K-I-V-E dot net and to apply to join the community. If nothing else, this is going to be very fun and educational and give you a glimpse behind the scenes into the world of alternative assets and art and culture. Tom explains it well, and I'd be surprised if you walked away from this conversation not a little bit more curious and wanting to get involved yourself. But speaking of curiosity, before we get to the conversation with Tom, I want to introduce you to the newest presenting sponsor of Not Boring Founders. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Tegas. Tegas is the most comprehensive database of expert call interviews with former executives, customers, competitors, and industry experts, plus a tech-first platform that makes it easy to surface and search SEC filings and earning transcripts. Tegas has become the first place that I look when I'm starting to research a new company, whether it's a public company or even a later stage private company. The thing that I love about Tegas, as opposed to some of the other expert networks, is that traditionally in the expert network model, a big hedge fund might pay a whole lot of money to interview an executive or a former executive or a customer of a company to better understand what's really going on at that company. And then that information stays private for just the company that paid for it. 
Tegas offers expert call services like those other guys, but at a fraction of the typical cost. And it can make those calls so affordable because instead of locking them away, Tegas shares the transcripts from those calls with all of its paying members. That means that I get to access the questions that much, much smarter investors ask about companies and to the answers that experts provide. Each Tegas transcript I read makes me smarter about the particular company that I'm researching and helps me become a better analyst and investor. It teaches me what questions I should be asking. Plus, Tegas has powerful workflow tools to speed up your entire research process, and it's adding new features and data every day. It should be your starting point for company research, whether you're digging into public companies or private ones. You can search for Snap or Stripe, Shopify or SpaceX. If you're curious about a company, Tegas has the transcripts that let you glimpse into insiders' minds. Go try it for yourself. Think of a company you want to understand better, and then take a free test drive of Tegas by visiting tegas.com slash not boring. That's T-E-G-U-S dot com slash not boring. And make sure to say thank you to Tegas for sponsoring this episode of Not Boring Founders with Archive founder Tom McLeod. Tom, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Thank you. I think I'm going to try to be as not boring as possible. I know pressure's on with, with the name, but I think you got this. This is one of the most not boring concepts and ideas and companies that we've had on the show yet and that I've ever come across. So what is Archive? Wow. Archive is building a decentralized museum curated from the bottom up, right? So what would it look like to put the Louvre on chain? What would it look like if the board of directors of the Smithsonian or the Met or you and your cousin and your aunt and your uncle who collects rare watches and your friend who has an MFA in fine art? What if we all got together and, you know, the, the gang bought a museum? And my normal starting question is what the world looks like in a decade if you're wildly successful. Like, what happens to culture? Or like, what does the world look like in a decade if Archive is as successful as, as you could imagine it might be? Yeah, I mean, so we have pretty lofty goals, right? Internally, we think about things as in, you know, we're the last museum. And that's not in a way to say that other museums shouldn't exist. It's just that the way we're going about this is that we're built for scaling beyond borders and beyond kind of restrictive real estate, et cetera, that kind of actually finds traditional museums. You know, if you were going to collect an item or show something, it, it exists in the meat space of where you put it. In our case, we both have both. So we have a metaverse side where we can have the physical items that are collected be displayed in a way that anyone can see it. So we're working on a whole interactive way to, to experience every item, as well as putting the items out into the world in the right places. So what would it look like if you collected a Frida Kahlo piece of art, and instead of it being in Washington, D.C. or London, it lives in Zihuatanejo, Mexico, or it lives in a place that, that actually mattered to the artist or mattered to the controlled significance of the items. So we're going to exist everywhere. It's almost like Pokemon Go to the museum. Oh, is that a, that was like a Hillary Clinton reference. It's Pokemon like, go to the, Pokemon go to the museum, right? So we exist everywhere. You land in Oslo and you open up your iPhone and you'll be able to see items of significant curated merit from archive right there. And how does that, how does that change when the museum is, is the landscape as opposed to visiting the museum in a location? What does this distributed museum look like in the physical world? We have this idea of public private spaces, right? So you could think about, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe living in the, the lobby of Amangiri or something in Arizona, New Mexico area. You could think about these things being in a place that best showcases the scenario which they were created in. But at the same time, 
if you acquired a significant piece of maybe the first Macintosh computer that could live at the Computer History Museum in San Mateo. And one of our goals is to not only drive the cultural value, but the access for the community. So everywhere we put it, we want to make sure that the community also sees value from that. So if we had items on display there, do you get a discount for being an archive member? Can you visit that museum to see those objects whenever you want? Do you get a discount on the Avanamangiri? Like we're working on all these BD sides as well. So it becomes this amazing community that also has value being driven to it from being a member and putting the items out into space. So I want to take one, one step back here, maybe 10 steps back all the way to the beginning. Yeah. Or were you a museum curator before this? Where'd you come from? How did you decide to build the last museum? The path is kind of wild at this point. My degree is actually in audio engineering, randomly enough. Uh, how, how do we sound? I sound terrible. You sound amazing. I'm thank on a you, dinky webcam. You're on. If people could see the quality of the mic this man has right now, I mean, I don't know if you're this bassy, but it feels, I feel important listening to you. Yeah. There it is. There it is. So my degree is in audio engineering. I actually used to run like a very small independent record label in the arts in a music studio. And I always loved the side of art and culture and pop specifically in this concept of, I believe that there shouldn't be a separation between high and low art and that it's kind of a self-imposed thing done by, let's say my global elites seems like it's political, but I just mean from like academic elite, a group of people sort of decide why is Beethoven more important than Drake? I'm not hundred percent sure. Yeah. There's probably plenty of technical reasons, but what, what gets people dancing could be just as important to me. And so I always looked at music from that same space. And I felt similarly about art that there's clearly reasons of significance and cultural impact and importance of items and how are they displayed and how is that communicated could be very different for individuals and a lot of people gatekeep the reasons for why we put things up and sometimes why some things get pedestaled and some things don't. And so the idea here is largely one, we can break down some of those boundaries while still maintaining the significance of them. And from what I mean by that is museums serve an amazing purpose. They do put out academic thought. There's a reason for curation. Curation is more than just cool hunting. And I think that's kind of where we're looking at. Can we curate items of significance that are culturally important to a large swath of people? that might not fit the traditional mold all the time? Or can we put those things next to each other? So that's one. And then from a journey, my last company was called Omni. And at Omni, there was sort of three people in the space at that time. There was Make Space and Clutter. We were doing on-demand physical storage. Everyone came at it from a slightly different angle. Clutter came at it from a, I would say, large-scale palletization. So they took all of your stuff, put it on a pallet, shipped it off to a warehouse very far away. If you wanted it, they could bring it back on a pretty long out schedule. Works at some levels. It's kind of a replacement for regular storage. Makespace did that was like micro pods. So Makespace dropped off a small bin at your apartment or 20 bins and you'd fill the bins and you'd put a sticker on top that said shoes, put one that said clothes, one that said books, and they could bring you back your books bin or your clothes bin, et cetera. But my Makespace customer, I think they brought back when we moved, like, it sounds like the best idea in the world. I think they brought back half of my stuff, broke in or nicked or whatever. And then just like this incredibly cool bookshelf that I'd found, like I, in the building that I lived in before, can never find again, poof. Um, beyond the five or six years of my life that were the on-demand storage wars, I still will say, I feel personally that the Omni approach was the best, even if the operations and logistics side of it was expensive. The way we came at it was, you know, we took every single individual item, we photographed each distinct item and you would open up your phone and you could see your entire closet. You could say, Hey, here's, you know, here's my tent, my sleeping bag and my, my canteen. I'd like to go camping on Friday. Please drop that back off at my house. 
and you know, for people who used it, it was extremely high product market fit. People loved it. In 2014, when we were raising capital, if you talk to anyone, you talk to Andreessen, you talk to Uber, you talk to anyone putting out money, self-driving and drone delivery was going to be a thing by 2017. It was like, listen, y'all, Cruise, Waymo, Uber, we are putting money into this. You guys are going to capitalize on the massive knee that's going to drop up for you and decrease on logistics of distribution across urban grids. And I'm here to tell you it's 2022 and I occasionally see little tiny things, you know, delivering warm sushi in Santa Monica, but we are definitely not at the on-demand logistics self-driving revolution yet. And, you know, we built a business largely expecting some degree of being able to take advantage of at least self-driving trucking. But one of the things that happened early on was, you know, we were getting those tents and sleeping bags and skis. We also got lots of clothes. But we started getting valuable one-off items. I mean, whole sneaker collections, you know, 75 pairs of sneakers at a clip. And we're taking amazing photos, right? So we understood why people cared. And we were seeing, I think we had a, we had a Rembrandt etching at one point. We had the first Macintosh computer, like Whoa. new in box. And, you know, we were panicking. We were, this is when we were in a thousand square foot warehouse. Yeah. And, we, you know, we had a system built to, you know, store surfboards, not store a 9.7 Spider-Man 100 comic. It was like, so we ended up building out basically little vaults, like little secure areas in every facility. And those facilities kind of worked like little banks and very few people had access. You had to have like a thumbprint to see it. Only the shift manager that was actually operating there because those things didn't move very frequently. And I, ironically enough, so though I probably shouldn't have, I did. So I would go into the warehouse and I would go into these little, the little vaults in the different places. And I would think to myself, Hey, this is like a museum. Like this is like a little museum curated by people. And you would see all of people's items that were not their utilitarian thing was this is stuff that they cared about. They had deep T-shaped knowledge of things that were culturally significant to them. And it always stuck with me. I always thought there's a whole business around this vault that is different than the largest of the other 100,000 square feet surrounding it. And we ended up exiting that company to Coinbase in 2019 after doing a wild crypto round. How, how did that happen? I, that, this has always been a question that I've had is how, how Omni got acquired yeah. by Coinbase and why and the whole right. thing. Yeah. I mean, tech. Technically, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say acquired. I think I have to keep the word exit is in my, my clause, but there's all kinds of nuances to these things. But so we ended up doing this fundraising deal with Ripple in 2016. And for all intents and purposes, I might've cowboyed in this pretty high where we had an opportunity to receive a really favorable valuation in terms if we agreed to take XRP as the actual token that was distributed, right? And for that, we were excited because we were about to launch peer to peer and we wanted to be able to very cheaply handle rentals and sales of items and Interledger at that time. And I still believe largely in it, it, it you know, it could ever get to the traction it deserves. It was a fantastic way of doing yeah. rapid transfer of value. So you could get paid out in Ethereum or dollars or everything. It, it did a lot of the AMM stuff that sort of DeFi does now on, on like a Uniswap or a, a one inch in, in other internal systems. And what ended up happening is just honestly by a, a dumb luck, there's three types of luck. Have you ever gone down this? There's three types of luck. No. I don't know if I'm over talking this conversation. Patty, no, no, there's this three is, types I, of luck, I, right? I will stop you if you're over talking. This is awesome. 
Okay. So there's luck one, right? Luck one is dumb luck. Luck one is, you know, you don't get out of bed and someone sends you a check for a million dollars. It's just like nothing. You did nothing to do it. This is pure just, you know. That's never, whatever. that's never happened to me, actually. Does this, does it doesn't this happen, happen to people it, send million dollar checks? It doesn't happen. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. But, you know, every now and then you hear a story of someone, you're just like, man, that, that person just, they just got lucky, right? Son of a bitch. Then luck yeah. two is luck involving movement. So maybe you find $20 on the ground, but you had to pick it up, right? You had to be out. You had to leave your house. You had to do something. You had to, you had to at least put yourself in a position to, to opt to receive that luck. I think for most people, that is the luck that they think of when they think of luck. It's like so-and-so was at the right place at the right time. And man, if that had been me, et cetera. And then you have kind of luck three and that that's movement plus kind of skill and positioning. So that's like, you know, you were ready to seize it. You set yourself up that, man, I'm going to keep grinding on this. But if that moment is there, I've got, I've got the infrastructure ready. You know, I'm going to capitalize. I don't know how it's going to manifest, but when it's there, woo, we're going to run. And I, I would say for all intents and purposes, we had a big luck three moment where we were ready. We had a business that was growing nicely. We you know, met the right people at the right time. And four months after receiving that investment, Ripple went from 22 cents to $2 and 40 cents. And, you know, like seven figures of investment suddenly was, you know, a, a lot larger number there. And we ended up being a very different company because of it for, for better or worse. I think we made some decisions in hindsight that I would never make again vis-a-vis. We looked at it almost like a mandate to expand when it was probably it's, it's like taking a It's like accidentally taking a soft bank check, kind of. Le- legitimately. We luck threed our way into a Series B, but we couldn't have raised a Series B at that time, right? But we, we then attempted to grow in the same manner, like, oh, here's a mandate to run. So, you know, there's different ways to look at that. And having come from the physical space startup world myself at, at Breather, you can really spend yourself into, into a hole when you, when you think you have more money than you know what to do with. So I let me tell imagine you, warehousing yeah. vans, we were negotiating deals on steel from China to do racking, you know, to get 26 foot racking and warehousing, you know, we're like, we're yeah. going to, we got leverage now, you know, we do these choices, but some of the things that were definitely done right is that, you know, we were building out really intense backend crypto payment rails. So very few people knew this, but whenever you were transacting on Omni at the end of the day, it was actually running on crypto rails in the background. So we had a very seasoned team, a uh, shockingly seasoned, to be honest, because no one would think of this at doing like crypto payment stuff. And we were doing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in transaction volume in a consumer fashion, which vast majority of crypto transactions up until that point were purely speculative, right? It's, yeah. Even today, it's largely speculative traffic, right? Very few people are selling Bitcoin for bread. Like that doesn't happen very often, but at least we were showing that there was a, a consumer use case where the capital was being distributed in and out and people could choose to get paid in any currency they wanted. And we also built out an internal sort of crypto hedge fund that we had to manage the capital, right? We couldn't sell it all. We had all these different things. So we had people internally that were like doing wealth management of an asset class that was on a balance sheet that was fluctuating some days, you know, 20%. It, it was a little bit chaotic, but, you know, we had good relationships with Coinbase and a few other people were interested as well. And, uh, you know, I think we found, uh, we found a home for the team and everyone that worked out really well for pretty much everyone when it was all said and done. If you sold on IPO date, I think everyone did all right broadly. So it all it won't worked out there. But yeah, so cut to 2020 and I was looking at all these fractional asset platforms, 
So now you have Masterworks, Otis, Rally Road, you know, doing this idea of like fractionalization of physical items. This is a personal opinion, but I found that they were fun for a short amount of time. So it's like buying two shares of a Basquiat was extremely fun when I was looking for the Basquiat, like when I was looking for the painting and looking at all these crazy things. And it was fun when I hit the button because like, I'm like American and spending money is fun. And so like, I'm going to hit, I was like, ah, you know, I hit the button. And then I was always looking at like, what happens now? There was no conversation around it. I couldn't go visit it. There was no community. I'm like a collector at heart. Part of collecting is like, you go on Reddit and you talk about your stuff. And like, no one wants to talk about the two shares you bought of a painting. You'd rather talk about one thing you cared about immensely that you loved, that you spent $250 on, $250 in shares of a $40 million painting or whatever. It's just, it, it wasn't there. I was like, hmm, this is going to get disrupted. I think, I think when crypto finds this, at the very least, we're going to have these 24-7 markets on physical goods. And that's going to be wild. At least you're going to get this, like, people moving items and doing things differently. And then we jump forward to 2021 and NFTs are ripping. You know, I'm seeing Flamingo, Dow, Pleaser, and all these places that are like, you know, doing rampant, rampant being similar to traditional art world speculation. Like yeah. everything you're seeing happening with NFTs is happening right now in the real art world. I mean, from group buying to collective floor bargaining, to cutting backroom deals, to locking items up in vaults in Switzerland to create perceived scarcity on the market. This is no different than things we're seeing happening with like NFT speculation right now and certainly in the highs of 2021 summer there. And I kept thinking, well, what if we did this with, with those items? Like, what if we put all that together? We started to collect things as a community of physical items. And that's kind of been where this all came from. It was like, let's take the physical stuff. We can use NFTs in a way that I personally feel more excited about, which is like actual contracts of ownership. Let's own them as a community. Let's, let's bring that together. And the NFT of ownership underpinned by the collection of the DAO, which now curates the pile of capital that is invested through membership. And then you get to vote on what we acquire and they, they grow and we can put them in the right spots and, and you get archived. And there's a lot of places we can go from there, but that's kind of the functional core. That was, that was beautiful. So instead of doing what a lot of people do, selling their company and then going and just collecting on their own, you decided to start collecting with hundreds. How many people are in the archive community now? I think as of last night, there's about 200 and we're real slow on the adding new people. We're adding about 10 people a week right now. There's a 480 person wait list. And I don't think anyone even knows what it is. So it's like naturally just like super quiet word of mouth. There's this little bit of wait list. I think the people that are in there are pretty, pretty superlative. I've never um, felt so uncultured uh, as I have when I looked at the list of people. I was lucky enough to, I guess, get to work with Julian on Constitution Dow, and then he, he pulled yep. me in, but like, I'm definitely the least classy person on that whole list. Can you say any names? And either way, how'd you pull that group together? Yeah. I mean, we have incredible folks in there. We have, you know, top rare book collectors in the world. We have people who are heads of curation for major institutions large-scale private sellers and like managers of very large high net worth individual art collections we have ceos of top startups we have top investors yeah i look at it like if archive works this will be the first place i've used this phrasing so you know bear with me all i think archive is the perfect midline for crypto like i don't think our target demographic exists yet if there's a spectrum of people in the world 
and you just say there's a whole, there's 6 billion people who don't care at all yet about crypto. And there's 2 billion who have heard of it. You know, you've got, you've got your far left side are people who are just like, eh, this is tulips. I don't care. This is whatever. And you have your far right side, which are like, I'm degenerate flipping my pickles for yams <laughs> so I can buy a board ape, you know, and then I'm going to debt that into a reverse loop on Abe. Neither of those are probably archive users yet. The one side is like, this isn't real. And the other side is like, ah, eh, this isn't going to get me the yield. I and then if you move in 33% on both sides, so we're about, you know, 33 and 66 on a zero to hundred chart, the 33 is probably Hey, you know what? I've got a Coinbase account and I'm interested. I bought some Bitcoin in 2017. It's done pretty well. I want to learn more. And I go to museums occasionally and I care about sports and watches and, and family and art. And I listen to dope music. Archive is super interesting to those people. This yep. is a great way to real. It has this thing. It's tangible. It's, it's talking about stuff that they understand. And if you go to the 66% side, it's like, I have a MetaMask account. I bought my ends. I bought a couple Solana NFTs as well as on OpenSea. I also still care about music and art and culture. Like archive is right in between those folks. It's like not the degenerate and it's not the like, this is a scam. It's the like, I'm crypto curious or I'm crypto in. Where's the perfect thing? And I think that's why it's resonating with people. Like it's the folks who want to do this stuff, maybe full time, or maybe they have another day job, but they want to talk about things that they care about and they care about people and culture. And a lot of that stuff is through items. Like culture is events and the items that make up those events, right? And we're hoping to collect those and put them on display for the world. So I think we've managed to get great people because like those are the right people. Well, at least yeah. those are the people I want to hang out with. And I think most people find that those that happens. That's where I am. Certainly in the, like, I guess the midwit area of the bell curve in terms of crypto loving and, and curiosity. So how does it work? Like nuts and bolts build this, this decentralized museum curated by a group of 200 plus people and growing every week. Yeah. And I mean, the goal is at some point, you know, I think we'll end up at, at 10,000, right? The way it works is when you get onboarded in, we, we think of things in curatorial seasons, which is again, we're mapping to the meme of museums pretty hard here because we want to play in the same space. We want to be taken seriously as in like, we're using the language. We're spending a lot of time studying this. We want to work with and on behalf of like culturally significant institutions that already exist and how we can partner and do things with them. Right? So. One of the things we're working on up front is what we're calling a study collection. And so a study collection is more of a focus on items that aren't as crazy expensive, but they, they round out the ability to learn and understand the direction that we're heading. So every single group that gets brought in, we're coming in at cohorts right now. So if you apply to join, you we get an application, we sort of go through everything and we try to focus on like where are holes in the existing community. So, you know, so we don't have enough people that understand comics. We don't have enough people that understand vintage cars or books or machines or watches or fine art or contemporary art or architecture and design. We're trying to keep that diverse as we're growing out. So we have internal people that are working on a theme. And so this first theme is called when technology was a game changer. And so all the next six items that we acquire are all under that theme across different segments. So when technology affected was a game changer in art. And technology was a game changer in watches when technology was a game changer in sports. So you could think of sports being, you know, the first sneakers that had Nike, like Nike air or shocks or the first time Michael yeah. Jordan, original game worn Michael Jordan, Nike airs, you know, like looking at these things from a, how, the, how that works. And as you join, you actually get to choose between three items that you pick two. So your first onboarding experience is you get to vote as a group, your small group of cohort to pick two items. And then your, those two items get proposed out to the whole group for what we acquire. 
So right now, every single month for the next six months, we're acquiring a new item through that. And then in the lead up to, through the end of the year, our Basel and a big sort of launch showy thing, we'll have these three major permanent collection items that are significantly, you know, more, more impactful and large that are going to be permanent collection. So we will have studied the segment and then look at the items that were curated in those six to kind of flesh out the back three there for the whole collection. And that will get put to a vote of the entire community, everyone proposing great items. And, you know, like you said, Julian from Constitution and, and a lot of other places are a part of this. I think we've learned a lot from how this has worked thus far. And so seeing how Spice DAO and Constitution DAO and, and this idea of front running and, you know, how do you do this in a way yeah. that works? So, you know, we're, we're putting a lot of time and effort into, into creating systems by which we're working almost exclusively with private sales and direct stuff ahead of time, where we're putting a lot of work into the marketing, the, the research, the, the video, the stories, Twitter spaces, podcasts. So, you know, you want us to pick one of your items, even if it doesn't sell, we've basically created the same thing Sotheby's does for you. Your item is going to be way hotter yeah. regardless of not. And you're functionally agreeing to explain exclusive sale right with us ahead of time at a fixed price. So either your item sells and you're happy because you made your sale and you made your money and it's great and it got put into a great institution that's going to put it somewhere else amazing, or it didn't and you've got amazing content, copy, story, narrative, and thousands of people have seen it and it's probably going to sell even faster. So that's kind of how we're thinking about these systems of acquisition and curation. And you make this trade because people are just fucking degenerates and nobody can see an opportunity to front run something and see that the group is interested it you know, no matter what the intentions of the group are and not try to go buy that ahead of you so that you have to pay them and they make a profit and all of that. So the way the DAO is, is slowly being formed into like planned decentralization is that the overarching system is, we call it the Archive Stewards Association. And again, mimicking to the, and mapping to the mimetic meme situation of like the, of a museum, it functions kind of the way the Smithsonian Institute would function. So, you know, the Smithsonian Institute isn't the museum you go visit, visit the Air and Space Museum or the American History Museum or the Natural History Museum, et cetera. Those, those are sub pieces that operate as the actual museums they curate. But there's an there's organization on top that handles a lot of the legalities, the structuring, funding, grants, anything of that nature. And so we have that system in place, which is kind of working on all the legal documents, everything that has to go in place to make sure that the decentralized portion can run really well. Over time, we'd like to take that whole pie and, and get that whole thing out there so it's being run through a fully decentralized manner. But early on, it's like we don't even know what we don't know yet. So we, totally. can't, we don't want to lock things on chain until we have a system that we know works and get enough reps up for it. So that's what largely this year is. It's like getting all of the, for all intents and purposes, the code that will run the operating system of the museum on chain, you know, to deploy in the next, hopefully, 20 months or so. You seem like a good person to ask this question. You've been in the space for a while, but it seems like in a pretty practical way the whole time. Like, what's the point of decentralization here and Web3 versus like kind of just pulling a group of people's money together? Like, why go through all the headache of, of doing all that and risking front running and all of that as opposed to just saying like, hey, let's get 100 friends together and go buy some cool stuff? So I think there's multiple reasons. This isn't to say that the space hasn't done it right yet. I think a lot of projects, companies, et cetera, thus far have been, hey, we see a lot of momentum in an area, let's move towards it. And I think this next round of founders, companies, businesses, builders are coming out of a different direction. They're like, I have a really interesting idea 
And I think this actually unlocks the value in a better way. That's how we came from this. I certainly ran through the, like, what would it look like to build a, I don't know, a, an alternate asset ETF or something where people vote with shares. Like I looked at all these and the short answer is it's like not good. It's unbelievably complicated. Where's the community side of it? Where does that come together? Where, where are you actually parking the, the value? How do you distribute that? How, how do you bring people in? So there's just the recruiting side. Like where do you, where's the participatory incentivization? Then there's just sort of business models. And so I think historically in crypto, a lot of business models have just been like token go up. And in this case, we're looking at it like, I think there's a lot of ways to actually utilize the community itself in a way that potentially mobilizing and weaponizing it in an incentivized manner through maybe service fees, distribution of work, all different things can actually make it a collective that can work together as more of a, a super organism. And I think that's what's lacking in all of those other places. And most of those other structures historically you have a team of individuals that are largely looking at their own benefits and they exit when they don't. In this case, if you exit, it's part of the business model because you sell the NFT and we, you actually increase our treasury and, and allow most likely a more aligned person to join. And then if you stay, you kind of have to work within the confines of the structure that's being set by the community. And so, you know, I look at it more like, you know, are, what are we creating? You know, I think we're creating like the Magdal Carta, right? Like we're, we're looking at it. Like, how do you actually replicate unique actual governance in a way that is efficient to get the job done as opposed to inefficiently utilizing extra work there? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's phase one. Also, I, I don't know where this sits on the, the discourse. I don't read enough tweets, but. You know, I've been in these loops before, you know, like I cut my teeth in mobile. Like I launched 17 mobile apps from 2010 to 2013. And yeah, I mean, it was a crazy time. Every three months we launched another iPhone app. And after three months of it didn't do the metrics, we killed it. I do think that tech has a short memory. Like I was in South by Southwest at 2011. Every mobile app in the world had raised millions of dollars in venture funding and they all had houses and parties and you know, and mobile's gone now. Nobody uses mobile anymore. Huge businesses did come from that. A bunch of things didn't work, but mobile was here to stay. Like the technology enabled a lot of amazing things that people weren't expecting or weren't prepared for. I'm in the middle of a rewatch of the X-Files right now. My first AOL screen name was X-Filed Out because <laughs> my babysitter asked me what my favorite TV show and my favorite band were. And I said, X-Files and No Doubt. But she wrote it like I had watched too much X-Files. And so I was like X-Filed out. She didn't put the B in there. She was foreign. Not going to uh, lie, X-Filed doubt would have been like kind of a meta. Oh, there's like a, you know, the truth is out there. Exactly. I'm deep in the sauce right now. I'm on like season three. I need but to rewatch. Every episode, every episode, I'm like a smartphone would ruin. Like that <laughs> show does not work with the smartphone. Like the whole thing is Mulder sees something and Scully misses it. And they don't have cameras. There was an episode that hinged on a fax, but Dude, she needed a photo, a fax sketch of a criminal. I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading Sebastian Malaby's The Power Law right now about the history of venture capital and going through the networking era of like pre-internet era when yep. Cisco and like its its predecessors were out and all of that and all of like the computing stuff, like it all kind of maps to what's happening now. And it's just very funny that each generation is like, no, nah, there's no use here. Like this isn't going to work. What's going to happen? Yeah. And, and what happens is you miss everything. Like AOL missed social. How did you have aim and lose chat? You know, it's like, because you didn't take these things seriously. Facebook's here. 
because Facebook took mobile seriously. Let's be, yep. be super clear here. If Facebook hadn't figured out a mobile strategy early on, early on in the history of mobile, they would be, they would have been lapped by numerous people because someone would have figured out mobile and their ability to flex into that and then acquire intelligently has done a lot of work there. And I look at this as the same thing. It's like, I was in that chaos. I saw a bunch of dumb apps and thing and people were like, oh, you know, all, everyone's got an app. That was like every yeah. day. So I'm like, oh, go on to a new app. People would pitch you app ideas. And like, I feel that energy that, that happens in, in, in web three and crypto as well. But also real builders show up at some point, <laughs> they shakes out the people that are just trying to hustle their way into some bucks and big things will happen. And I personally feel like that's where we're at. And I, I'm coming at archive from that same perspective where it's like, I don't know how this works without it. I don't, you know, I, I can't think of a system that enables these, the, certainly the future iterations in the same way that this does and unlocks a lot of the different opportunities to mobilize individuals and incentivize them in a way that is like structurally ingrained in the system. And I think about that often where I'm like, and, and also from a perspective of a founder, it's like, oh, it's just very different. I've watched five companies in my life and everyone is a little bit different, but each one, you just kind of get better at the stuff that you're good at. And you learn to delegate the stuff that you're not yeah. like, what's the only learning is just like, oh man, I just want to keep doing the things I'm good at. And every time I do that, I'm more successful. And in this case, you're like, oh, wow, the, the resources here are just, it's different. That's massive opportunity and blue ocean on it. And so it feels almost freeing to get to work in this space where, where the differences are when you were confined to mobile, you were deeply restricted to Apple's guidelines, largely. I mean, in 2012, Apple makes a change and your entire business disappears. Similar to when you're, if you were doing Facebook mobile game, if you're doing Facebook gaming in 2011, Facebook tweaks and thing and your, your, your company loses millions of dollars in revenue a month. In Web3, literally everyone is just trying to make your stuff work better. <laughs> like it's, it's out there for the world to consistently improve upon. I do think that is something that people are not paying enough attention to. They're missing the fact that we're removing the walled garden. You're just building on the world's largest public park. And like, that seems to be a better opportunity for growth to me. And if everyone loved the walled gardens and made billions of dollars in the walled gardens, what are you going to make in the largest public park? Like, it should be significantly better. And, you know, that's the opportunity I see. What I like about that is there's this kind of like cool, big, like, we'll see what happens vision. But there's also like, there's a little bit of efficiency. You were trying to use Ripple because it makes what you're trying to do more efficient. Here, it's just like a hell of a lot less paperwork and headache to do the same thing. And then there's things that you can't otherwise do because you can program this money to incentivize people and, and all, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's a very balanced and practical, but but optimistic look, which is probably the right stance to take if you're if you're building in the space from a member perspective. So you mentioned the membership NFT and there's like secondary sales that they go back to archive. Like what's that experience of onboarding? You mentioned that you have to choose kind of like two of three in the beginning, but do you buy a membership card? Is that immediately transferable? What do so I do to get involved? Right now, we're well pre-mint. We haven't announced the mint. You know, this is just come in, join, add value. Internally, we've, we're starting to roll out something we call archive points which is basically, you know, engagement metrics. So, you know, did you participate in the curation? Did you participate in the Twitter spaces? Did you join the Zoom? Did you attend an event? You know, we're doing all this stuff. We want to kind of, I don't, this is kind of, I don't know where this stands, but like life is kind of a leaderboard. Like there's a gamification of almost everything if you really think about totally. it. And if you want to incentivize community, you should figure out a way to at least show the people that are putting in effort have a way to, to grow inside of it. And so, one of the things that we've got a proposal internally is that archive points are going to map to voting power. So, you know, if 
by actually working and doing stuff to keep the system running and to keep things moving and participating, you can earn your way into voting power. Now, where we think about NFT launches in the future is that they'll at least have sort of a set floor of voting power. So you can join in a way that is, it, it gives you, you know, holding this guarantees you will always have at least this amount. So if you have to go somewhere for weeks or you want to stall out or you whatever, this locks you in at a position that will always be there. And if anyone in the future wants to join at that level and you want to exit, it holds it there. Your points are tied to your wallet, but then your points are now increasing the overall value of, of where you start. So it's a way to kind of jump in and, and grow with that and lock yourself in early. And we're going to attach those opportunities most likely to people who have participated on the road there. So how do you join? How do you be a part of the earlier mint? How do you get access to these things? Pretty standard stuff, but like, at least it won't just be one person being like, oh, that person's cool. They should get it. It's going to be like that person has spent four months. They've been to four events. They helped fill out the membership directory. You know, they, that everything has a bounty and we can put that together. And then you can tie that to why that they, why you have more operations. If you were building just a straight up tech company, right? The blitz scaling of it all. Usually you're just like, what's your TAM in humans versus your TAM in capital, right? And so your human TAM is like, you put in the deck, you're like, well, there's 6 billion people on the planet. And then if we capture 1% of those people, that's the cliche of it, you know, but but you, you, you put this big number on and it's like, we're going to get a SaaS business and we're going to have a thousand new users every week. And that scales exponentially. And that, you know, so we think there's lots of revenue streams, but the part of this is that there probably won't ever be millions of people that are core members. It actually, it actually doesn't benefit the community. The benefit is to continually make sure the right people want to stay and you're incentivizing behavior to get the best 10, 5, 20, whatever that number eventually it lands at people constantly pushing it because that's actually a lot of people like a 10,000 person company can do a lot of great things. So if you have that group of people and they're being weaponized and incentivized in a way to really drive impact, that's great. And so I look at it from a perspective of, we don't actually have to go out here and say, cool, you know, our metrics are by Q3, we want to have 50,000 users, which would have been you know, a great start seed company and mobile era. It's like, no, we want 500 unbelievably engaged people that are like the best of the best because this wins if community first is pushing the right people in and maintaining a structure by which even the people that are like, I could see a world where it's like, you're doing well in the system, but you want to, you actually realize that you could probably give your membership to someone else because you want to see benefits broadly of archive mm -hmm. in other, in other capacities, because its success could be tied to other opportunities for you that come out of archive. So like. How does that work? You might grant someone an NFT because you want them in. You know, there's, I think there's a lot of things that we'll be able to do in the future that creates incentivization to drive the best 10,000 people in there. Best, best being somewhat uh, subjective, but probably data rich and visible. There's a lot that needs to happen. Even just thinking about like one specific example of that, which is like somehow giving people points for showing up to a Twitter space. There's been obviously an explosion of Dow dueling companies out there. Are you using a bunch of those or do you feel like you have to build a bunch of stuff from scratch here to? to your unique needs. This is me saying, I don't know everything you've invested in. So I'm going to make sure I don't say every specific item, but I think there's a lot of Dow tooling startups that have never tried to run a community. And that I find that kind of odd, you know, it'd be odd to launch a sneaker company and never having jogged, you know, like it. So I, it, I think there's a, a windfall of those that it, it's a cliche even now to talk yep. about that. But my assumption is the best Dow tools will 
probably come from a DAO. Like it'll probably be a DAO raises the capital and solves their problem, similar to how a Discord or a Slack shows up. It, I think that's kind of how these things end up really working. Doesn't mean they won't learn and integrate other people's stuff or acquire, or, or, or there'll be a some sort of a roll up of, of the best people from those. I think we've found internally the number one problem right now is synchronous versus asynchronous communication. If you're running a pure NFT speculation discord full of like 17 to 27 year olds, who this is what they're doing full time, then discord is actually great because you just live with the ambiguity and the chaos and someone is flagging alpha and they're moving it, you know, like that works. If you're like, Hey, this is a thousand people who participate in a lot of other communities that have interests and hobbies outside of this and work at different things. And this is part of their stuff. You can't maintain a nonstop synchronous communications thread and attempt to make sure that value is being communicated to folks. At the very least, we need to move into a spot where there is some sort of synchronous comes and async where you have like a threading situation and a real time thing. I've seen a couple people start to dig into that space and we're happy to beta test any of those. And for us, it's unbelievably important. Like, I think we'll have, I think a failure right now of a lot of DAO governance is just, you look and it's like 7% of people vote Yep, or lower. I mean, it's, voting is so low. It's like, it's like lower than the United States. Like it's the voting, voting like is so low. I actually think voting in archive is going to be dramatically higher because it's fun. It's, it's so like you're fun. voting on uh, the Jordan sneakers versus the, the, the LeBron rookie sneakers. Like, are you voting on that Basquiat versus that Warhol? Like people are going to get hyped about stuff and you will have seen all, but you won't get hyped if you don't know. And so figuring out a way to keep that discussion, make sure interesting things are surfaced, turn those into shareable pieces of content that can be pushed out to everyone. It just needs to be kind of a dashboard for that. And I'm excited to see those things come because I think that's really the number one problem. In traditional companies, certainly traditional startups, I think columns and community were afterthoughts or they were like the, the second or third. So you probably went eng first product, like eng product design some kind of like a biz ops thing, you sort of backdoor into that. You had like the model you made in the deck that you sold people on. And then you're like, well, now we got to do it. And then somewhere seven months in, you're like, all right, it's time for launch. Let's get a PR team. Right. And I actually think in web three comms and community are up there with product and tech because yeah. you're not going to work if you don't manage either of those things well. And with that, it means that you have to have systems that are surfacing that information that are putting that out there, that are making sure people are aware of things constantly. Because you're actually engaging with your customer in your community, who is then also your number one sales tool, who is also your employee. Everyone wears five hats the second you join a Web3 community, and which means you can't just, you can't just be like, well, come to the all hands, you know. Which is funny, right? Because it's like all the things that people like me who just get to sit there and write about this, like, like, oh my God, you get your community and they're your salesperson and they're your customer and they're your whatever. But you also do have to manage it. And it's like a whole different kind of like stakeholder that hasn't, hasn't been managed before. You, so you have to figure this stuff out in, in real time. We're wrapping up here. Who should come find Archive now? How should they get involved? What's the best place to get started? And who are the people that you want to see in the community? So, you know, we were talking about the, the 3363. I call the, you know, the left is like crypto curious and the right is probably like crypto confident. You know, so those are the types of people that I want. If the Venn diagram overlap of your interests are like, I care about culture, right? So it's like, when you overlap, the thing that you should be interested in is like, I want to learn stuff. I'm brain hungry. I'm interested in learning about things I don't know about. I think that's where you're going to find the most value and probably the most community market fit is looking at yourself from that perspective. And that doesn't mean you have to be some crazy authority on some obscure 
random science or, you know, antiquities that no one knows about, but it does mean that whatever you're bringing, it's potluck, you know, come to the table. I, you don't have to bring dessert or something, but maybe you're the person who brings the silverware. That's super handy. Like people have to eat this stuff. Like, yeah, we've got a lot of people making cakes, but no one bought plates. That's a problem. Like you can be the plate person. That's the opportunity that we're presenting here. And that means you get to eat the cake. How do we work those opportunities in? And I think we're going to be an unbelievably welcoming opportunity for that with a lot of potential mind expansion. We have like a book club, which seems odd, but like yeah. we had a lot of participation and people did a whole space, like an internal discord conversation about curiosity closets and like how people put these little like shrines in their homes. And like, I learned a ton and it was interesting. And now I kind of want one. Dude, this is, I mean, like, I think this is what attracted me to this. Yeah. This, this, this community in the first place is like before not boring was a newsletter. I really wanted, I wanted to have like literally Soho house for nerds kind of like Soho house means college extracurriculars where you're like, I, I started a Slack book club before COVID, like just a bunch it. of this nerdy stuff to try stuff out. I started a debate club. And so like finding this group of people who's just broadly curious, we're like, culture is this unifying thing, but it can mean so many different things that like you can come in and add value in a lot of different ways and find the thing that most appeals to you and to your point where you can most bring the, the plates or the silverware. It's a really, really special thing I think you have going. So highly recommend that people go check out archive, A-R-K-I-V-E dot net. Tom, Thanks, this was Joe. awesome. Thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Thank you.